Welcome back to the Moody's Blue, a podcast about the worst Moody Blues songs, which, as I remind you, every episode is all of them. And boy, does today's song blow. These egotistical fucks uh, even named it after ben. themselves. Ben. And I'll tell ben. you one more thing about Ben. 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 What? You know, Moody Blue is by Elvis Presley, right? <gasps> wow, you're right. Somehow my hatred of the Moody Blues actually made me forget my obsessive knowledge of Elvis Presley's entire catalog. Ben, you don't even host that podcast anymore. This isn't the Moody's Blue. Yeah, this is Discord and Rhyme. <laughs> Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. Doing my best Michael Stipe there. Uh, you can subscribe <laughs> to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and so forth. And you can find show notes and our full episode archive at our website, discordpod.com. All right, roll call time. Rich Bennell. Phil Maddox. Ben Marlin. Yeah, another scrappy power trio. It's busy times for the Discord and Rhyme crew, <laughs> so we couldn't round up a quartet this time. And then there were three. By Genesis. First, I want to shout out our new Patreon donors this week, Greg, Karen, and B. We really appreciate your generosity, as well as the support of all the awesome folks who've signed up so far. We love doing the show, but it takes a lot of time and research, and this helps offset all of that, as well as our ongoing operating expenses. So again, big thanks to our donors. Yeah, thanks, Karen. So listeners who are interested in signing up can visit patreon.com slash discord pod, and we have a few different tiers with some fun perks. Okay, housekeeping is over. Phil, it's your turn in the host rotation, and I understand you'll be talking about Elvis with us today, but I forget which album. Is it Imperial Bedroom? The Juliet Letters? <laughs> the Sears Model? I'm afraid it is not. It is Elvis Costello's little-known 1969 album, From Elvis in Memphis, recorded many years before his debut. <laughs> <laughs> wow, how did he do that? <laughs> okay, enough torturing Ben. This is Elvis Presley. <laughs> so, Phil, why did you pick the album? Well, two things to cover here. One is why Elvis at all, and two is why this album. As for why Elvis at all, he's a very interesting figure, a figure that I think is both overrated and underrated at the same time, because he's so culturally ubiquitous that people act like he's, you know, the biggest thing that ever was, which culturally he kind of was. But also a lot of people just completely dismiss him for some reasons valid, some reasons not. But I think he's interesting and I think he's worth talking about. And in addition to that, he's you know good. So now as for why I picked this album, Elvis came from a time period where people didn't generally make full length LPs. When he started, you know, his debut album was just some new songs and some stuff from old sessions slapped together. This album was one of the few albums that was at least kind of put together to be an album. Plus, it's, to me, a little bit more interesting to talk about than his earlier stuff that everybody knows really well. And it was important to his career because it was part of his big comeback thing, and it's kind of considered to be his best album. So I figure this is probably the most interesting place to jump in. Okay, Phil, tell us about you and Elvis. How did you get down with the king? 
Well, like almost everybody, he'd been kind of a dull background noise for my entire life. I can never remember a time where, you know, Blue Suede Shoes and Hound Dog and all those songs weren't just utterly ubiquitous. But I never really paid him much mind. Until one day I basically just decided, you know, Elvis is a hugely important figure. I should know his work. So I started stalking this complete Elvis album collection set which I finally got for a good price, and then I ordered it. And I decided, all right, let's start <laughs> digging through the Elvis albums. So I listened to all of Elvis's albums and found that a lot of it is great, a lot of it is terrible, and almost all of it is interesting. So he's a figure, while honestly, like a lot of what Elvis does is not my personal all-time favorite type of music, but it's all interesting and you know, worth discussing. So mm-hmm. I find Elvis to be a very interesting figure. Okay, Ben, it's finally time. <laughs> Tell us about Ben Marlin and Elvis Presley. I know it's the cliche that I'm the Elvis guy, although the our Slack conversation from the last couple of days has shown me that Phil really knows his stuff. So I'm excited about this. But that's really only been true for the last couple of years for me. Uh, about three years ago, I went through a heavy Elvis phase I bought all his albums. I read Peter Guralnik's excellent two-part biography on him. I found a cool Elvis mouse pad at the flea market. Uh, He was pretty much all I listened to for a few months, which I just want to say thank you to my wife, Denise, because that was a dark period for everybody except me. Um, (laughs) I loved it, though. The man has had a long and fascinating career. And as a cultural icon, he's someone to get lost in. Elvis is a lot of things, uh, but in a lot of ways, he's frustrating. Uh, You can't look at his career without indulging in a thousand what ifs and what might have beens and without dwelling on his wasted potential because he was a massively talented musician. And I'd say one of the two or three best singers of the rock and roll era. He could make almost any song listenable, engaging, emotional, relatable. Uh, But as I'm sure Phil will get into Elvis had an approach to his career that could most generously be described as laissez-faire and maybe more accurately described as he didn't give a sh**. There are layers and layers of reasons for this, each one more frustrating than the last, and I'm sure Phil will get into that. But the result is that so much of Elvis's recorded output consists of him putting lipstick on a pig, uh, delivering a great vocal performance on a chintzy piece of crap song. And so despite the fact that he left us a titanic artistic legacy, it's nearly impossible to know his story and not think about how much greater that legacy could have been if only he had cared enough to make it greater. And as Phil talked about, you know, he's there's this dichotomy where he's a gigantic cultural figure, just recognizable all around the world. Everybody knows Elvis and most people love Elvis, but he's also treated as a joke a lot of the way and and he's easy to not take seriously. And there's also the the pernicious, slanderous, lazy, complete and utter BS rumor that Elvis just stole black people's music. I could fill pages and pages writing about why that's just not true. And maybe I will sometime. Uh, But in the meantime, I'll just say that Elvis, the artist, will blow you away if you take the time to explore his music. And I'm excited to hear Phil talk about it today. Yeah, I, I would agree that both him being frustrating, even when he was recording good material, for example, after this album. He did a bunch of kind of scattershot studio sessions, and all of the albums were just tracks taken from random sessions, and they would always just use like random photographs of Elvis in a white jumpsuit against a black background on the cover, Hmm. and they all look super cheap, and there's no coherency to the albums, Hmm. and it's just, 
Elvis is a difficult figure. <laughs> yeah. As for myself, if you go back to our very first episode, uh, I give Phil some crap for not knowing September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Well, here's your revenge, Phil, because I knew almost nothing about Elvis until like a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I listened to the Elvis number ones collection, the the big hit one, and I recognized maybe five or six songs, but those songs have never really been present in my life. Right. They're more something that I would hear, like, say, um, in a Johnny Rockets mini jukebox or like, say, <laughs> the, uh, a rock and roll section in a museum exhibit. Right. So, But it's got his all time best song, the techno remix of A Little Less Conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and a little more touch my body. <laughs> All this conversation ain't satisfaction in me. Anyway, that's my way of saying that I am the doofus noob here hmm. reporting for duty, much like Elvis did. Um, <laughs> and I'm happy to report that I, that I really, really like from Elvis in Memphis. It, it's it, I didn't realize that he actually had an album that was suited for album nerds. I thought he was just a singles guy. Uh, so I won't be a wet blanket at all. So that out of the way, uh, Phil, tell us the entire history of Elvis Presley and leave nothing out. <laughs> sure thing. Uh, I hope you're all prepared. This episode is going to be 38 hours long. So, <laughs> All right. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoe. Well, you can do anything but take over my blue suede shoe. You can knock me down, step in my face Slander my name all over the place We'll do anything that you want to do But now, uh, honey, lay off them shoes And don't you step on my blue suede shoes Well, you can do anything but take me over my blue suede shoes Let's go, cat! All right, so, for real, though I'm not going to give you the super detailed history of Elvis because there's probably been more ink spilled over Elvis than any other figure in American popular music. And honestly, I don't know why I'm hedging this with the word probably. <laughs> it's also very easy to get buried in the more sordid aspects of his life. As such, I'm just going to hit the basics that you need to know to understand his basic backstory and how this particular album came to be. And if you're interested and you want to know more than that, there are approximately 800,000 other places you can look. So, relatively short version. Elvis was born in Tupelo, Mississippi on January 8th, 1935. He and his family moved to Memphis when he was 13, which is where his love of music really blossomed. He hung out on Beale Street, took in the music scene there, and eventually decided he wanted to become a performer. So, cut forward a few years, and in 1953... He records a demo for Sun Records, a sappy ballad called My Happiness. Evening shadows make me blue When each weary day is through How I long to be with you My happiness he claimed to have only recorded it as a present to his mother, but as with much of Elvis's life, it's hard to know if that's true or not. I'm inclined to believe not true, because why did he record at Sun if that was it? But whatever. Sun didn't love him, but they thought he was good enough to keep on file. Sam Phillips, the owner of Sun Records, supposedly claimed that he was looking for a white guy who sounded black and ended up bringing Elvis back to record a few songs. Elvis ended up recording an old Arthur Crudup blues number called That's All Right, a moment that has gone down in history as a moment of pure inspiration and improvisation, but again, 
Who knows how much of this is a myth? And Phillips knew he had a hit on his hand as soon as he heard it. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do it, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, Mama. Any way do. Well, Mama, she done told me. The song was a huge hit around Memphis. Elvis recorded a bunch of other songs for Son, though he never cut a full LP there. Until finally, the major labels came a knockin'. He ended up signing with RCA Records in 1955, where he'd stay for the rest of his career. From there, well, you basically know the story. He had a ton of huge hits that everybody on Earth knows. He became a controversial figure due to his waggling hips, etc., etc. In 1958, he was drafted into the Army, which put his recording career on hold for a couple years. When he came back, he cut a little bit more music before his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, steered him in the direction of films. This basically put his career on hold for a full eight years, as he appeared in mediocre film after mediocre film after mediocre film. I should say here, I've never actually seen any of these films, but I don't feel like I'm missing a lot. The songs he recorded for these movies were collected in soundtracks, and they are, with a few exceptions... Not great. Old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. And on that farm he had some chicks, E-I-E-I-O. With a cluck cluck here, a cluck cluck there, loud as they could be. And when those chicks got out of line, chicken fricassee. Queenie Wahine's book pile rates higher than pineapple, pumpkin, or poi. Please pick her papaya with Queenie Wahine in perfect perpetual joy. Girls on the beaches commit a sin if they don't show yards and yards of skin. Preceding message to you has been through the courtesy of the Fort Lauderdale Chamber of Commerce. Dominic, Dominic. Why are you stalling? Don't you hear love calling to you? Move, move, move your little foot, do. And because it's still online at the time I'm mentioning this, you should check out the second episode of Ben's Detours podcast where he talks about Elvis's film career and he goes back and forth between Elvis's songs from that period and, you know, what the Beatles and the Doors were doing at the same time. Yeah, Podbean just sent me an invoice for $108 for the next year, so Detours is going to be up there for at least another year. Awesome. It's a good episode. Elvis hated most of this material. Session outtakes from those years had Elvis openly trashing the material he was playing. But he played along. Eventually, the movies kind of dried up as the quality got worse and worse, and the audience lost interest. Eventually, the Singer Corporation, best known for their sewing machines wanted to make an Elvis television special for NBC. It was originally going to just be Elvis singing Christmas carols, but Elvis hated that idea, and he convinced them to let him do the kind of music he wanted to do. The special, officially titled Singer Presents Elvis, but known to most simply as the Elvis 68 comeback special, or the comeback special, revitalized his career. 
Elvis decided he was going to spend the rest of his career making the kind of music he wanted to make, which, with a couple of exceptions, he essentially did. So that brings us to 1969 and From Elvis in Memphis. This was the first album he recorded after the comeback special, and the first LP of material recorded in a single set of sessions with the intent of being a secular LP that Elvis had recorded in a long time. I say secular because he did record a religious LP, How Great Thou Art, a couple years prior. More on that later. So Elvis decided to record at American Sound Studios under the eye of producer Chips Moman instead of RCA Studios, where he typically recorded. There, over the course of a month, Elvis, along with the house band of American Sound Studios, recorded From Elvis in Memphis, along with enough material to fill several more LPs and a bunch of singles. So what were the results of these sessions? Let's find out. Yes, let's. All right. And that's the finest history of Elvis I've ever heard, Phil. Thank you. So before we talk about From Elvis in Memphis, uh, we love our listeners and we love hearing from you. If you have any thoughts, questions, or feedback for Discord and Rhyme, we're on both Twitter and Instagram at DiscordPod. And you can also send us an email at DiscordPod at gmail.com. We've been getting some really great above and beyond emails from people lately, and it's been fun to read. Also, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, it helps us get recommended to other folks if you leave us a rating or a review. And if you're not on Apple, post on us on all the social media places, like make a TikTok video about us on the 0.1% chance you're both listening to us and young enough to be on TikTok. <laughs> Come up with a Discord and Rhyme dance and have it become a social media phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the spirit. Uh, so speaking of the TikTok generation, let's get on to Elvis. Yes. <laughs> So, side one of From Elvis in Memphis begins with wearing that loved on look. I had to leave town for a little while. You said you'd be good while I'm gone. But the look in your eye told me you told a lie. I know there's been some carrying on. I always expect this to become a shop around. <laughs> baby, baby, that love the ashtrays are all full of ashes. The floor needs a touch of mop. As a man Alright, so let's get some of the basic housekeeping about Elvis out of the way first. Elvis was not much of a songwriter. It's not true that he never wrote songs, but he very rarely did. Nor was he an arranger. He was a singer. As such, he didn't write any of the songs on this album. Of the 12 tracks on the original album, nine of them had previously been recorded by other artists, sometimes by the people who composed them and sometimes by others. Three of the songs, while not exactly, quote, Elvis Presley originals, were first recorded and released on this album. Wherein that loved on look composed by Dallas Frazier and Doodle Owens, made its recorded debut here. So this track, two things are very clear instantly. Elvis's voice sounds fantastic, and the band is absolutely red hot. Elvis is singing material he actually likes, and hmm. it shows. It demonstrates instantly that American Sound was the correct place to record. Everything here works. The guitar, the gospel piano... The bass playing on this album is just out of this world. It's constantly doing interesting stuff. It propels the whole album forward. It's got a great drum sound. Just wonderful sound. This is everything clicking right away. It's a very good way to start off the LP. 
So who chose the material for this album, Phil? Do you know that? Because I, I, I definitely get the impression that, you know, he was basically forced to sing the material on the previous LPs, but uh, he really seems to have his heart in the stuff on this album. I'm not entirely sure. I think he had some say in it. I think some of the material was presented to him and he decided mm-hmm. what he wanted to do. I think some of it was songs that he liked. I don't know if Ben knows better than I do, but it's hard to say exactly who selected what material. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about these sessions in particular, and Rich is right that these are different, but I mean, he usually had an an army of people around him who were trying to sell him songs because they would get a cut of it. And he also had in-house publishers. I think it was a company called Hill and Range that basically wrote the songs for him and all the songs that he sang had to be licensed through them. And that's one of the reasons he sang just a bunch of crap in the sixties. I don't know how much they had to do with this album. My guess would be that he sort of wrestled away from them for this because the songs are good. And he had an entourage always around him, like at all times too, right? Oh yeah. Influencing him. Yeah. Yeah. And it only got bigger and worse after this. (laughs) I can imagine. Uh, So Ben, what do you think? Yeah, it's great. I mean, from the first moment of the first song on this album, you can hear how committed Elvis is and how much he cares about being there. Uh, he always gave great performances, but you know, as Phil talked about, you know, when you t- when you listen to some of the session outtakes, you can tell he didn't like what he was doing. Whereas this, he not only is trying hard, he likes it. He cares about it, and that's a thrill to hear. The shoop shoops are a little affected. I mean, they don't sound completely natural coming out of Elvis, but if that means that he was just caught up in the moment, then I'll take it. It's a little show busy sounding, which is a common thing with this album. The whole thing's a little bit show busy sounding, which kind of dates the album. Because when this album came out, I mean, contemporary music was like Abbey Road. Yeah. And this sounds, if it's supposed to be quote-unquote rock and roll music, I would argue it's not, but we'll talk about that more later. It certainly feels a lot more show-busy and artificial than that, but that doesn't mean it's not very good. Uh, Doofus Noob says, I like it. (laughs) It's good. Uh, So without knowing Elvis and needing an angle for this episode, I kind of just, in a lot of cases, I kind of just dug into the songwriters. And uh, in the case of Dallas Frazier, one thing I found out about him is that he released his first solo single in 1954 when he was 14, and it's called Space Command. (laughs) Oh, boy. I turned my television on, and there to my surprise, I saw the spaceships flying in the supersonic skies. Milky Way and round the planet Mars Well, it looked like fun to be a flying there among the stars Space Command, Space Command Flying through the atmosphere, the Junior Space Command Space Command It's bad, but I, I didn't have my stuff together nearly that much when I was 14. I mean, he knew what he was doing. He was looking to the stars. I respect it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm doing kind of a before and after where in that loved on look for Dallas Frazier because he also he was also the songwriter behind the Oak Ridge Boys early 80s hit single Elvira. Wow. So I have to say we're in that Love Don look wins, but I had fun digging into the wider <laughs> career of Dallas Frazier. Do we know anything about Doodle Owens? I don't. <laughs> you, okay. no. you expect me to be rigorous <laughs> with my research, Ben? 
<laughs> I know he worked with Dallas Frazier a lot. They were mm-hmm. a songwriting duo. Yeah, they oh. come up again on this album. But I don't know like much about him other than that people called him Doodle. <laughs> Not to be confused with Doodles Weaver. <laughs> there was there were two Doodles? No, there was a Doodle and a Doodles. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's the No Doodles Club. All right. Uh, let's go on to track two. This is Only the Strong Survive. I remember my first love affair. Somehow or another, the whole darn thing went wrong. And my mama had some great advice, so I thought I'd put it in the word to this song. I can still hear a say. Sitting out there all alone Crying your eyes out Cause the woman that you love is gone That bass is big. Phil, you're right about it. It's just so good. Oh yeah, when, when, the, when the song picks up, the bass is just going. Oh, so listen to me Get up off of your knees Was only the strong survive That's what she said Only the strong Only the Strong Survive is the first of nine cuts on this album that were covers. This was a very recent song. It was from 1968, written by Jerry Butler, Kenny Gamble, and Leon Huff, though originally performed by one of those authors, Jerry Butler. The original had actually been a pretty sizable hit, getting all the way to number four on the Billboard Hot 100 and topping the Hot Rhythm and Blues singles charts twice in March and April of 1968. Oh, it's gonna be, that's gonna be a whole lot of trouble in your life. Oh, so listen to me, get up off your knees, cause only the strong survive. That's what you said, only the strong survive. possible that Elvis's owes something to this. <laughs> yes, uh, perhaps a little. I would say that Elvis's feels a little more Motown to me than the original does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard, I, I've heard yeah. the original described as proto-disco. Elvis's really feels like a Motown song. Mm-hmm. Like, really feels like a Motown song, to the point that it almost had to be intentional. But, you know, as, you know, a Motown song, it sounds very, very good. I like Elvis's version a lot. This would hold up pretty well against almost anything in the Motown box set that we have been covering on our side, you know, podcast within a podcast. <laughs> this is comp. Though one thing about this is that I love that Elvis kept the opening monologue from the original song. So the original song started with a monologue, you know, about how he was putting his mama's words into song, which that kind of made sense when the song was sung by the person who wrote it. <laughs> But now it's just Elvis covering it and covering somebody else saying that they wrote the song, (laughs) which is a little silly, but eh, whatever. It's fun. Well, speaking of Motown, Gamble and Huff, uh, I mean, they're a big songwriting duo in their own right. And in fact, they co-wrote I'm Gonna Make You Love Me, which was the the battle rhyme between Diana Ross and the Supremes (laughs) and the Temptations uh, that we covered. The Temptations. (laughs) That we covered in our Motown series, uh, and they're th- yeah, they're they're huge. Like they founded Philadelphia International, and they're kind of 
the forerunners of the whole Philly soul genre. Uh, I would say one of their biggest songs is Love Train by the OJs, and I have a clip right here. Oh, yeah. Oh, I did not know that was them. Let ahead bobbing for that one. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like they they kind of picked up the baton for Motown and just kept running uh, while Motown was off doing other things. But uh, I guess you could listen to our Motown series for that. But that's what I love about this. Like, I, I mean, only the strong survive. It was it came out in 1968. Like, the, there's a lot of like older country standards. Uh, but this is a contemporary soul single, and uh, I, I like that. Uh, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later. But I like what Elvis uh, or whoever chose the song is doing here to like elevate contemporary black music. I I love how on this album, Elvis does seem to just really vacillate between country songs and soul songs and contemporary songs and modern songs. It's an interesting blend Mm -hmm. and the whole record still sounds coherent. It doesn't feel like he's going all over the place. Yeah. So Ben, what do you think? It's great. And Rich, I'm glad you like it. I'm I'm enjoying the, (laughs) the doofus new take on things. Um, This is Elvis as full-fledged, awesome, legendary soul singer. Uh, There was no indication in his career before that he would end up doing this. And sadly, there's not that much of soul master Elvis in uh, in the subsequent years. The truth is, his comeback didn't last nearly long enough before he began his slow slide into drugs. Spoiler alert. Still, the capability to be a great soul singer was always there with him, and his famous quote from back when he came to Sun Records for the first time is that he sing, he said, I sing all kinds. And especially when he got out of the army in the early 60s, it was clear that he was committed to being a great singer and a versatile singer, not just a hip swiveling rock and roller. And you could even say that he sort of ditched rock and roll entirely at that point. Uh, but still him taking it in the direction of just total soul guy is a wonderful surprise. And, and this is a great song. Okay, we're done here. Let's go on to song number three. This is All Hold You in My Heart, open parentheses, till I can hold you in my arms, close parentheses. Elvis was a punctuation nut. I said I hold. I said I hold. I said I hold you in my heart. Finally. just talking about how Elvis was covering songs from all over the spectrum in terms of time. Here's him doing a much older one. 
So this was originally written in 1947 by the team of... Was there even music then? <laughs> I don't even know. But it was written by Eddie Arnold, Hal Horton, and Tommy Dilbeck. It was recorded that same year by Eddie Arnold. His version differs substantially from Elvis's version. So back on uh, Only the Strong Survive, it's very clear that Elvis just copied the arrangement, or whoever did the arrangement copied the arrangement. But this one differs a lot, because this one has a very strong doo-wop sound, whereas Eddie Arnold's original was just pure 40s country. I'll hold you in my heart Till I can hold you in my arms Like you've never been held before I'll think of you each day And then I'll dream the night away Till you are in my arms once more. So, this is going to show my ignorance of classic country from this era, because apparently this is one of the most popular and famous country songs of all time, and I just didn't know it. I, me neither. So this song hit the top of the country charts and stayed there for 21 straight weeks. That? Yeah. Her? Mm-hmm. It set the record. <laughs> it was the longest running song at the top of the country charts for decades. Wow. In other words, this is a song Elvis almost certainly knew. Because he would have been a teenager when this came out, and there's no chance he didn't hear it. So this just had to be a song that he knew and liked. This one has a lot less opportunity for the band to really make an impression than the last couple songs. They're more providing a standard doo-wop backing. So the focus is clearly on Elvis, who absolutely knocks it out of the park on this one. One thing that's noteworthy here, as Ben was talking about earlier, you know, Elvis is frequently thought of as the king of rock and roll. But is this album rock and roll at all? The term I see associated with it all the time is country soul, which is about as good a descriptor as anything. But if you come into this record, you know, after listening to, you know, the debut or whatever and expecting rock and roll music, you're going to be sad because <laughs> this album is not rock and roll. And he basically stayed in this basic kind of vein, getting a little bit croonier at times, but he never really went back to doing straight up rock and roll. He would do rock and roll songs at his live shows, which would be, you know, very showbizzed up. But his studio career was never really rock and roll again. And as one final note, people talk about, you know, Elvis not playing an instrument. He does play an instrument on this song. Oh. He's playing some piano. Nice. I'm not sure exactly what he's what part is him versus what part is the studio cats. But he's in there somewhere. So good on him. <laughs> I was going to say that this song in particular is a good example of the country soul thing as an idea. Like he takes this very traditional Nashville country like uh, original in 4-4 and turns it into a 6-8 doo-wop song. Like he gives it like an infusion of soul music, which I think is cool. Right. And in my opinion, it improves it. I like this a lot more than the original. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of old country music just feels... I like old bluegrassy stuff, but a lot of this kind of croonery old country music just feels kind of frustratingly straight to me. But I'm a big fan of just covers in general that completely change the arrangement to the point where it's a different genre. Uh, so I'm a big fan of this one. 
Yeah, a few factoids. Eddie Arnold, he was actually the artist that Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, managed before Elvis. So that's sort of where uh, El- where Colonel Tom got his start. And then also I looked up, uh, because uh, listening to this podcast is marginally better than just looking on Wikipedia, uh, I looked up who played bass, and it's Tommy Cogbill on this album. And to link this back to another excellent Phil episode, uh, Tommy played bass on... I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You by Aretha Franklin, which we covered a few years ago. So I'll Hold You in My Heart. I wouldn't call it a great song, and frankly, it baffles me that that Eddie Arnold version was as monumental as it was. Uh, But it's a great soul song, at least the way Elvis does it, in that it's short and punchy, and it's a vehicle for a fantastic performance. And I really like what Rich said about how he just sort of changed the nature of the song the way he did it. There's a lot of the song where Elvis just goes off mic. I've never, I've always looked up to see if anyone else has written about this and I've never seen anything about it. Maybe the sheer feeling of singing just took him away from the microphone. I've never figured it out, but it brings a little quirk to an otherwise straightforward album. So I like it. Okay, everybody, let's get into our long black limousine, which I'm sure all of us have. (laughs) I don't want to get into this long black limousine. Short, white, hybrid Camry. When you live, you know you told me that someday you'd be returning. All right, she's back to see him. In a fancy car. Local girl comes home. Feel good story. Well, everyone watching you, you finally had your dream. And you're riding in a long black limousine. You know the paper, all of how you lost your life. Oh, yeah. Boy, what a bleak song so if you listen to the lyrics of this the long black limousine in question is a hearse mm-hmm. where uh you know the woman always said she was going to be coming back in a long black limousine and she came back dead what a depressing song <laughs> so the arrangement here even sounds funereal with there's bells at the beginning there's kind of a churchy organ they give it kind of a gospel vibe the whole thing sounds kind of like a funeral, which cool arrangement and another really good song. The drumming on this one, you know, is really good. And this is one where I think the bass really stands out, too. So the original version was in 1961 by songwriter Vern Stovall, which is much more of a straightforward country version. When you left home, you told me Fancy car for all the town to see. Yeah, 
if I could judge this based on 10 seconds, uh, Elvis just blows us out of the water. I guess you got your dream. You're riding in a long black limousine. Well, one thing you can't hear uh, on that clip because it's at the very beginning of the song is it has like a surf guitar sound, mm. uh, which I think is interesting. Like this is California country music, which I didn't know was a thing. Yeah, Bakersfield sound. But yeah, Elvis's version is clearly superior. It's a much more interesting arrangement. It's got a better vocal. It's an example of how this song, when it was taking older material, could just really reinvent it in an interesting way. Yeah, this is one of Elvis's best vocal performances ever, and it's a fantastic country song, although I don't think the writer knew how fantastic it could be, you know, having heard that clip uh, until Elvis came along. It's got a muscular arrangement that builds and builds up in the drama, and uh, Phil pointed out the bells, which are just a powerful touch. It's kind of easy to tell where the song is going, like why she's riding in the long black limousine. You know it's not prom night. You know she didn't pay extra for an uber black. Uh, we, we, we get what's going to happen, but the reveal still breaks your heart because of the urgency and sincerity in Elvis's voice. But yeah, but like I said earlier, with this, with old country music, a lot of it, even when it's well written, it's just so straight a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And it just... I like arrangements like this that kind of dress it up a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of where I what I want to get at. Again, this one's a completely new gospel style arrangement, which I think is great. Like and just like the last song, they've infused uh, black music into what was a completely different, much more stately. Yeah, much more square take <laughs> on the song, as we clearly just heard. Um, but like uh, since I keep bringing up the subject of like uh, of the influence of black music on Elvis, I, I just I want to touch on the subject of homage versus appropriation because it's hard to avoid. And um, and also because the relationship between Elvis's music and black music like all things is, is extremely complex. And um, well, so there's there's this one quintessential moment from Public Enemies Fight the Power. Elvis was a hero to most, but he Elvis was a hero to most. Yeah. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant to me as he straight out racist. The sucker was simple and plain. Motherfucking in John Wayne. Cause I'm black and I'm proud already. It's right about John Wayne. Yeah, for the record, John Wayne, way worse than Elvis <laughs> Presley. John Wayne was a but on the other hand, after Elvis died, the only person who was granted private time with him at rest was James Brown, who said, quote, I wasn't just a fan, I was his brother. So anyway, to cite my sources up front, I'm going to link an article in the show notes from the website The Conversation called Elvis Presley's Ambiguous Relationship with Black America. Basically, in a nutshell, the rise of Elvis was during a time where you, when you couldn't just instantly hear whatever music you wanted and what got distributed and, and what got heard was subject to the same racial codes as, as the rest of life in the country at the time. Um, and in addition, to quote that article, quote, at that time, the black press proudly pointed out the critical influence of black blues, rhythm and blues, and gospel music on Presley's style. Not to chastise him for cultural appropriation, but to applaud his impeccable taste at a time when black music was routinely denied mainstream radio and television airtime, and often denigrated as immoral and barbaric. End quote. So... That's the context of a song like this with gospel influences and of the gospel albums he he released. And uh, and just yeah, just just infusing gospel music into a song that, again, wasn't gospel at all. So anyway, I just uh, I just wanted to make sure to touch on that at some point in this episode. But I think it's interesting. He clearly had a deep love of the music that that is 100 percent clear. 
This isn't him, you know, trying to cash in on anything. This is him playing the music he loves. Mm-hmm. Well, so one thing that the article gets at, and and again, we're three white guys here. I don't want to pretend to be like saying the final word on Elvis and cultural appropriation. But what the article gets at is that like Elvis, the icon over the years has eventually became kind of associated with the entire concept of, of white people appropriating music from black artists. Yeah, it, it's a it's a long fraught conversation that uh we could do a whole episode on it, like, you know, with nothing else. It's a conversation which I'm sure there's, you know, podcasts that have talked exclusively about this that probably do it in some depth. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure to acknowledge it without taking over the entire episode. Right. I guess just I, I'll give the extraordinarily noncommittal. It's an extremely complex situation. <laughs> yeah, I'll give my little take on that. And because you're right, this is incredibly complicated and, and there's As you pointed out, there's perspectives we just can't speak for. But from everything I've read about Elvis, he was not a racist guy. And, you know, he he had a love for black people, black culture. And I don't think he was ever consciously trying to to profit off of it or appropriate anything. There's a quote that went around that that was attributed to him. And that's that's caused a lot of criticism where he said that basically N words aren't fit to do anything except shine my shoes and buy my records and he never said it there's there's zero proof that anything like that was ever said by him and if you right. if you read about him there's it, it has nothing to do with the man that he was i mean you just can't imagine in a million years him thinking or saying something like that so that's just slander basically so yeah but that's one of those apocryphal things that i've heard attributed to him all the time and just as far as I can tell, like there's nothing to back it up. Okay, that having been said, let's go on to track five. This is It Keeps Right On A Hurtin'. I cry myself to sleep each night Wishing I could hold it tight Life seems so empty since you went away The pillow where you lay your head Now holds my empty dreams instead And it keeps right on a hurting Since you gone It keeps right on a hurting Every minute of the day Every hour you're away, I feel so lonely, and I can't help it. I don't think I can go home, and it keeps right on hurting since you go. This one's a country standard originally written by Johnny Tillotson in 1962. This one feels more like a pure country song, and if you listen to Tillotson's original, Elvis's version is pretty similar, right down to the string arrangement. It keeps right on a every minute of the day, every hour These clips, and I love country music, but these clips just give me so much more appreciation for, for this album. 
and what Elvis did with these songs. And it keeps right on a since you're gone. Johnny Tillotson, by the way, is still alive, 82 years old. Wow. Oh, cool. So the arrangement's the same, but the primary difference is the much tighter and more muscular performance by the Memphis Boys, which was the American Sound Studios band, and Elvis's vocals, which are considerably more powerful. Tillotson's voice is very clean and clear, and the vocals are, you know, buffed up with harmonies, whereas Elvis just plows through it in that way that only Elvis can, and in my opinion, just vastly improves it. It's a good example of an Elvis song just blowing the original out of the water. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's it's not one of the best songs on the album. It's it's very straightforward country. Whereas I, I keep coming back to what Rich says about how Elvis kind of transformed a lot of these songs. Where I don't know that he did that here. Not at all. Yeah, but there are a lot of songs like this on the album. They're they're really good. They're they're played with excitement and virtuosity and and graced with memorable lead vocals. Uh, they're not all. You know, they're not all suspicious minds, but but they're still classics just because of how wonderfully they're played and sung. I have very little here. <laughs> it's very similar. It's very good. Uh, I would say that Elvis, that the Elvis version really plays up the kind of sitting at a dirty old saloon feeling compared with the Johnny Tillotson version. But otherwise, they're, they're two very good, very similar songs. Yeah, there's a few songs on this album where there's not a lot to say other than the song is good. The playing is good. Elvis sings it well. <laughs> And this is kind of one of those songs. I don't have a lot to say about it, but that doesn't mean it's not very good. It's just very straightforward. Okay, not much to say about that one. So <laughs> let's go on to track six. I'm moving on. That big eight-wheeler rolling down the track with your true loving daddy ain't coming back. He's a rolling on. You were flying too high from one of those guys on but someday, baby, when you've had your play, you're gonna want your daddy. But your daddy will say, keep moving on, keep rolling on. You were flying too high, I'm one of those guys, so I'm moving on. Mr. Fireman, won't you please listen to me? Cause I got a pretty mama in Tennessee to keep rolling on. Keep moving on. All right, I'm Moving On was originally written and recorded by country singer Hank Snow in 1950. His original is basically just straight country music. That big eight wheeler rolling down the track means your true loving daddy ain't coming back. Cause I'm moving on. I'll soon be gone. You are flying too high for my little old sky, so I'm moving on. That'd I love classic country, but these are just a lot of swings and misses. However, even though that's the original, I think it's pretty clear where the inspiration for this version came from, which is Ray Charles's 1959 version, which turned the song into a killer soul groove. I warn you, baby, from time to time, but you just want to listen. Now, pay me no mind, so I'm moving on. Your vow, and it's all over now, so I'm moving on. Moving on. That big eight wheel rolling down the track. Me, your true loving daddy ain't coming back, cause I'm moving on. Keep 
Yeah, one. the Ray Charles version is rad. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the intro to it sounds like record scratching, which I'm surprised no DJs have picked up on. Yeah, it's really cool. And while I definitely dig Elvis's version, this is the first song on here where I'm like, well, the, the definitive version is clearly the Ray Charles version. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a straightforward country song. I like what, what Phil said before about, you know, it's a good song. It's played well. It's well sung. This is kind of one of those. It's, it's really good, but there's not a ton to say about it. Right. It, it doesn't hit me like the Ray Charles version does. Yeah. Um, the Ray Charles one stands out. And here it just sounds like another good song on this album. I like the gospel breakdowns on the Elvis version. Those are cool. Move on, son. Yeah, that's pretty much the central attraction for me. Just a nice like a nice time to boogie down as I frequently do. <laughs> I'm boogieing down as we speak. Okay, let's move on to side two. This is the first track on side two, Power of My Love. (laughs) I've been waiting for the unreliable DJ. I really like this song. I'll I'll come out and say it. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. One said Huey Lewis in the news. One said Celine Dion. (laughs) I chose Celine, and that has made all the difference. Here's the Elvis Presley power of my love. I'll break it, burn it, drag it all around, twist it. Please refrain from attempting to lick Elvis's love. <laughs> Will do. So this tune, written by professional songwriters Bernie Baum, Bill Giant, and Florence Kay, is the second song that's making its recorded debut here. It's a killer bluesy groove. This is one of my favorite tracks on the record, actually. The guitar just has a great sound here, and Elvis's voice has just the right amount of snarl to it to really sell this. It's another great example of this album having just great synergy between Elvis and the band. The band sounds great, and Elvis's vocals just put the whole thing over the top. So since this is a tune where the excellent band really makes a difference, this seems like about as good a place as any to shout them out. The core band that Elvis recorded with here consists of Reggie Young on lead guitar, Gene Christman on drums, Mike Leach and Tommy Cogbill on bass guitar, Bobby Wood on piano, and Bobby Emmons on Hammond organ. There was also a small army of horn players and background singers who were overdubbed later. But these people played on, as was similar at the time, like at this studio, most singers that came through had the same band. And this was just the house band. And these house bands were just almost always great, at least the ones that we remember today. You know, the ones at Motown, the ones at Stax, just great players. I'll echo Phil. I mean, the band at these sessions was so good. It's it's a soul song. Uh, the song is it's to the point. It's got exciting dynamics. It's not the most memorable melody. I, I like that Elvis sings with vigor. 
you can picture him doing his karate moves while he's saying like, uh, uh, and sort of living up to Jack White's Elvis impression in uh, Discord and Rhyme's favorite music movie, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. This, this is where I could picture that Elvis singing this song. <laughs> if you want a good example of how good this band is compared to what Elvis had been working with before, listen to any of his 60s soundtrack albums, or better yet, don't. <laughs> Just take our word for it. Yeah, so Bernie Baum, Bill Giant, and Florence K also apparently wrote the American theme for Osama Tezuka's anime, Kimba the White Lion. Kimba, 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 And then it gets really racist from there. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I just thought that was an interesting tidbit. Oh, and Amanda is acting as our DJ tonight. Uh, and she just informed us that there are sex noises at the end of this song that we didn't even notice because we're naive. So we're going to clip them. Okay, that having been put into the episode, here's track eight, Gentle On My Mind. I feel corrupted. It's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. Is that a clavinet? I think so. Awesome. That makes me tend to keep my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. It sounds like a little frog jumping on lily pads. <laughs> it's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds. I have the heat stains out of gratitude. Some love. Ribbit, 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 ribbit. That keeps you in the back. Oh, I'm always gonna hear it that way. The rivers of my memory. It keeps you ribbit. It's not clinging to the rocks and ivy. Something that somebody said Because they thought we fit Together walking Alright, Gentle On My Mind Written in 1967 by John Hartford It quickly became a standard Hartford's original version was pretty simple Just the basic melody on guitar and his voice It's not clinging to the rocks and ivy Planted on their columns now that binds me Or something that somebody said Because they thought we fit together walking It's just knowing that the world will not be cursing or forgiving When I walk along some railroad track and find So, you know, some guitar, a little bit of percussion, some bass. Pretty basic version. You know, nice, gets the point across. The song really shot to fame when Glenn Campbell covered it in 1968. His version, which had a slightly busier arrangement, is clearly the arrangement on which the Elvis version is based. It's a more interesting recording, in my opinion, fleshing out the original version significantly. This is the version that has essentially become a standard. Please play Rhinestone Cowboy. And it's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds And the ink stains that are dried upon some line That keeps you in the back roads by the rivers of my memory. It keeps you ever gentle on my mind. 
It's not clinging to the rocks and ivy planted on their columns now that bind me Or something that somebody said because they thought we fit together walk in so since this is quite a famous song, it's been covered by tons and tons of people over the years. While we're not generally including all the covers of these songs, since many of these songs have been covered countless times, I do feel the need to point out that the song was covered in 1968, a year before Elvis did it, by none other than Mr. Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Woo! Well, it's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. That makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. This is, this is fine. Of course it's fine, Ben. And it's knowing <laughs> I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds and the ink stains that have dried upon some line. That keeps you in the back roads by the rivers of my memory and keeps you ever gentle on my mind. His work here is done. Oh, a man after my own heart with that clip, Phil. Uh, did DeForest Kelly record a cover of it? If only. Aww. You know, the thing with the Nimoy clip is that it's not even that bad. The band is tasteful, and Nimoy is not a great singer, but he doesn't embarrass himself. He's not as good as Elvis, <laughs> which uh, that's going to be the hashtag hot take from this episode. <laughs> Elvis Presley is a better singer than Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Again, it's a, it's a standard. I've heard 800,000 versions of Gentle on My Mind over the years. Elvis's is a good one. And that's about it. Yeah, this is one of the better, more melodically interesting songs that anyone has ever written, in my opinion. It, to me, it, it feels like home, and I can never listen to it too many times. The first version I heard was actually by Dean Martin from 1968, because like most 20-somethings in the early 2000s, I went through a Dean Martin phase. Uh, but <laughs> as much as I love Dino and as much as Elvis loved Dino and was very much influenced by him, Elvis blows him away here because he was just on fire at these sessions. He's not going for excitement this time around. His voice is deep and supple and soulful. It sounds like home and Elvis. So I don't know what could be better than that. And this also kind of makes me nostalgic for the time where somebody would write a song and about 50 popular musicians would cover it within a year because <laughs> all these so covers we've talked about were within like a year of the song being written yeah this is definitely the one i would say where elvis like schmaltzes the song up the most but that's definitely a good thing it really works he turns it into the, like this big spaghetti western <laughs> ballad or something like that i mean the shot the song is a bit schmaltzy just in the first place so elvis mm -hmm. is uh additions to it are not unwelcome <laughs> well elvis knows his schmaltz <laughs> so let's go on to track nine this is after loving you so great about this groove because it's simple and yet they're just so good it's just gonna have to be second best i know i'll go through life so this is another one of those songs that as i've mentioned before there are songs in this album i just don't have a lot to say about 
This is one of them, which again, that's not a bad thing here. This is just, there's not a whole lot to say other than, again, the band sounds great. Elvis sounds great. It's a very, very solid rendition of very straightforward music that um, Elvis really, you know, sells with his voice. It's the kind of song that if it were by just some random band, there wouldn't be much to this. But here it's just a pleasure to hear Elvis sing it. So as for the song's history, it was written by Johnny Lance and Eddie Miller and was originally recorded by Eddie Arnold, the same Eddie Arnold that recorded I'll Hold You In My Heart Till I Can Hold You In My Arms back in 1947. This, however, was originally recorded by him in 1964, a full 17 years after that. Mm. So while the original tune of I'll Hold You In My Heart Till I Can Hold You In My Arms felt a lot more country-ish, by 1964, Arnold seems to have moved in a much more doo direction himself, leaving behind most of the country from his earlier recordings. Now after loving you What else is there to do Rose, darling, all the rest Will just be second best Again, this just gives so much perspective on what Elvis ended up doing with the song. Because this is, this is sweet, but it's barely the same song as what Elvis sings. Right. It's a good example of demonstrating exactly what Elvis brings to the table, because the arrangement is basically the same. But the Elvis version just, you know, crushes it. <laughs> and it makes it very clear what Elvis is doing here. That's one of the reasons I've been wanting to talk about, you know, the original recordings of these songs, because... Because I think a question that a lot of people might not think to ask is, what exactly is Elvis bringing to the table? You listen to this album and it sounds good, but if you look back to the original recordings, why would you listen to Elvis instead of the originals? And I think, you know, when you compare these clips, it makes it pretty clear why Elvis is very frequently the way to go. To me, this song packs such a punch. It's just a tidal wave of emotion, starting with that guitar riff that just builds up and up and up. And Elvis is mesmerizing. He starts at a 10 in intensity. And compared to the Eddie Arnold version, he's like at an 18 or a 19. And he just keeps it up the whole way. And the part where he riffs on, I'm no good, I'm no good, I'm no good to anyone, just it's incredible. As, as Phil pointed out, there's not a ton that's interesting about this song, it's, it, but it's a great record. I have nothing interesting or distinctive to say about this one. The electric <laughs> surf guitar on a doo-wop ballad. It, it, it kind of reminds me of the Earth Angel performance from the Enchantment Under the Sea dance uh, and from Back to the Future. And I know I pretty much have the market cornered on Back to the Future references on this podcast. So let's move on, shall we? Because that's that movie where uh, Michael J. Fox invents rock and roll and then Chuck Berry steals the idea from him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... Let's go on at 88 miles per hour <laughs> with true love travels on a gravel road. Not at 88 miles per hour. That would kick up a lot of gravel. <laughs> How many girls choose cotton dress world when they could have satins and lace and stand by her man never once letting shame touch her face. 
How many hearts could live through all the winters we've known and still not be cold? True love travels on a gravel So hey, it's another Frasier and Owens tune. Remember them from back on Wearing That Loved On Look? They're back in pog form. <laughs> <laughs> but this song, unlike Wearing That Loved On Look, had been recorded before, though the Elvis version is probably the most well-known these days. It was originally recorded by a guy named Dwayne D. in 1968, when it made it all the way up to number 58 on the country charts. Clearly, though, despite the fact that it wasn't a huge hit, Frazier and Owens had confidence in it since they brought it to Elvis and Elvis and his entourage liked it enough to do it. It's pretty clear why they thought Elvis would be the right man to sing this, because Dee's vocal on the original sounds strikingly like Elvis. I'm not sure if he was imitating Elvis's style and then Elvis copied him back, or if they just happened to sound very similar. How many girls choose cotton dress worlds when they could have wow, satins and yeah. lace he's elvising and stand by her man never once letting shame touch her face how many hearts could live through all the winters we've known and still not Most of these clips, a lot of them came from compilations called Songs Elvis Covered. <laughs> and things like that. But again, like these versions are basically the same, except the Elvis version has a slightly better arrangement. And Elvis has a better vocal. Again, I wish I knew like if the original was intending to be an Elvis song, like if Frazier and Owens wrote it, hoping Elvis would do it, and then they just brought it to somebody else first. Because it's so clear that Dwayne D is trying to be Elvis. <laughs> Can't be his Nashville non-union equivalent. I also included a cover here by Percy Sledge from later. Yeah, this song has been covered a whole bunch of times, including by Nick Lowe as well. And uh, looking up all the covers of this reminded me of uh, doing the same for The Hunter Gets Captured by the Game by the Marvelettes for our Motown series. Because, like, I kept hearing a bunch of different artists say this very specific, very poetic phrase with the whole build and setup. And eventually the phrase starts to lose all meaning. <laughs> yeah, I, I like this one a lot. It's warm and romantic. Um, and it's comforting. It's it's sort of like a, a slightly lesser gentle on my mind, but still good. Elvis's vocal is is tender and deep and soulful. I mean, that's the selling point of the song. But uh, I'm with Phil and there's not a ton more to say about this one. OK, let's go to the penultimate song on the original LP. This is Any Day Now. 
any day now I will hear you say goodbye my love You'll be on your way Then my wild, beautiful bird You will have fun Any day now I'll be all alone Any day now When your restless eyes meet someone so this song, before I looked at the credits, the first time I heard it, this song jumped out at me as having a more interesting melody than a lot of the other songs on this album, more complex melody than a lot of these songs. So eventually I looked up the credits of who wrote the songs, and it did not surprise me that much to learn that this was written by Burt Bacharach, along wow. with <laughs> lyricist Bob Hilliard. Bacharach wrote a lot of great melodies, so... Really not surprising when I hear a great melody and it turns out, oh, Bacharach did it. So yeah, fantastic melody, great performance by Elvis. You've heard me say the same basic thing a bunch of times because a lot of this music is hard to say more than that about without, you know, getting into specific vocal tics that Elvis does and nobody wants to hear me do Elvis impressions. I do. <laughs> well, too bad. <laughs> the original version was performed by former Dell Vikings member Chuck Jackson, and it's also excellent. The arrangement on Jackson's version puts more focus on the vocals than the Elvis version. Elvis's version has a very, very busy arrangement, while Jackson's is considerably simpler. Jackson has a fantastic voice, though, so that's really not a problem. Any day now, I will hear you say goodbye, my love, and you'll be on. Yeah, see, I can, I can tell that that is Burt Bacharach because it has that super precise brill building feeling. Like you can set your watch to that beat. <laughs> right. That's a lot more clear in the Chuck Jackson original because, again, the Elvis version really, you know, dresses it up a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So I like both of these versions of this song a lot. They're very different, but they both have their strengths. Yeah, that's most of what I have to say is that Elvis does a great job loosening it up to the point where like you can't even really tell that it's a Burt Bacharach song besides it being a little more like peppy and bouncy than the rest of the material. Yeah, I mean, this is just worlds away from the Chuck Jackson version, at least the the arrangement. Jackson's vocal is exuberant and, and soulful, but the arrangement is very like it could have been a, a Dionne Warwick version of a Burt Bacharach song. But yeah, Elvis is just so good here. It's just an amazing vocal performance. And he just builds and builds and builds until the big brassy finish. Um, yeah, it's it's a wrenching song. I really like it. OK, let's finish out the original track listing of From Elvis in Memphis with track 12, In the Ghetto. Well, the world turns And a hungry little boy with a running nose Plays in the street as the cold wind blows in the ghetto And his hunger burns 
So he starts to roam the streets at night And he learns how to steal And he learns how to fight in the ghetto Then one night in desperation The young man breaks away He buys a gun, steals a car Tries to run, but he don't get far And his mama cries As a crowd gathers round An angry young man face down In the street with a gun in his hand In the ghetto And as her young man so see if y'all agree with me. I'd say this is probably the most famous song on this record. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I hadn't heard it before, but I'd sure heard the title. So this was written by Mac Davis, a country singer and professional songwriter who wrote quite a few songs for Elvis, such as the also quite famous A Little Less Conversation. So he wrote this song and shipped it around to various singers, including supposedly Sammy Davis Jr., until finally Elvis decided to record it. It's interesting to listen back to this one with uh, modern ears. Elvis, Mm -hmm. as you may know, was white. (laughs) Mac Davis, the songwriter behind this song, was also white. Elvis was also unbelievably rich and leading a ludicrously decadent lifestyle. This all kind of adds up into being one of my least favorite genres of song. The rich guy melodramatically singing about all the horrible things in the world. See also Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins. The song has not aged spectacularly well. It comes across as pretty ham-handed. That said, once again, the talent of the band and the power of Elvis's voice still make the song work. It's got a very good melody. I like the guitar in it. It's got a nice, tasteful string arrangement. It's not my favorite Elvis tune or anything. In fact, I would say it's probably my least favorite song on the original LP. But it still works as a showcase for Elvis's voice. Well, regarding the word ghetto, I think it's worth contextualizing a little bit because the meaning of it has changed a lot over the years. So, like for centuries, it referred to the part of European cities where Jewish people were restricted, and it kept that meaning for a long time through Nazi Germany, actually. Uh, but by the time of this album... Uh, It was in common usage in America as, yeah, again, a coded term for poor black urban areas during the war on poverty. Uh, So though the word has fallen out of favor at this point in 2020, it was a lot more common in 1969 to hear it like being spoken sincerely by a white person or a white entertainer like Elvis. And uh, uh, there's a great post on NPR's Code Switch blog about the history of the word that I'll link to in the show notes. So... uh, Well, I guess one thing to remember, I don't doubt that Elvis is sincere performing a song like this since he rose out of poverty himself, and he also grew up surrounded by the Jim Crow South, so uh, he saw what was going on. But at the same time, like Phil said, I'm still not really in the market for a a cheesy social issue song, honestly. It makes an important social point, but it is pretty on the nose. I mean, it's, it's just very blatant about what it's doing. Um, And as you guys have said, I mean, it it was a different time, but there's something awkward about a white guy singing about poor black people, no matter how sympathetic he was being and how well-intentioned he and Mac Davis were. I have a little political digression here. One thing that's always bothered me is the way the story ends. The teenager, who's presumably black, finds a gun, steals a car, tries to run, but he don't get far, which I take to mean that he was running and a police officer shot and killed him. 
And while that's treated as a tragic event, it's also treated as expected and even an acceptable series of events. Like that's just what happens when he does what he does. And while it didn't become law until 1985, the police couldn't shoot fleeing suspects unless they believed that the suspects presented an immediate danger to people. It was always a terrible practice. The kid in this song made a bad choice, but he shouldn't be dead. And I, I wish the song, even as sympathetic as it is towards the kid, I wish the song didn't treat the outcome like it was some unstoppable natural occurrence. I mean, it's, it's just awful. Well, there's a lot of demonization of the urban experience, quote unquote, under the surface of the song, too. Yeah, it's um, there is no art or poetry to the lyrics here. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's written from any kind of experience. Yeah, it feels like somebody wanted to write a very important song about a very <laughs> important issue. But uh, this was what they could come up with. Yeah, no, I, I defended Elvis to the extent that I could with this song, but it's a uh, it's a pretty cheesy song. <laughs> I think it probably wouldn't have sounded quite so. I don't even know the word for it in 1969, but listening to it in 2020, it's a little iffy. Yeah, he's really singing <laughs> from the ivory tower here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I'll, I'll echo what you guys also said that Elvis's performance is is stunning, and mm -hmm. he does make me care about the people in the song even if it's a cheesy story. Right. It's still got a good arrangement and it's still got a good vocal. So even on a song like this, you know, it's not like I'm like, Ugh, turn it off. It's fine. But eh, <laughs> this one's hard to say whether I even like it or not. It's just too all the things we've said. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that concludes the original track listing of From Elvis in Memphis, but we have a couple of contemporary singles that we're going to talk about really briefly. So the first one is Suspicious Minds. Ah, you might know this one. Suspicious Minds, one of Elvis's biggest hits. It was never part of an LP, but LPs were never really something Elvis cared about. It was recorded during the same sessions as From Elvis in Memphis, 
and it's included as a bonus track on most editions of it. So I figure we may as well talk about it since we're already here, and, you know, it's Suspicious Minds, it's pretty well known. This might be the definitive song if you want to contrast early and late Elvis. Early Elvis hits, like Blue Suede Shoes and Heartbreak Hotel, generally have very simple, energetic arrangements. Late-era Elvis hits like this one are way more show-busy. It's the kind of stuff you could imagine being performed by, say, Tom Jones. I could hear Tom Jones singing this, and I would imagine it would sound pretty good, but I do not want to hear Tom Jones sing Blue Suede Shoes. Personally, I tend to gravitate more to the earlier material when I get a hankering to listen to Elvis. But that doesn't mean I don't really like this. I do. A lot. It's got a great melody, a great arrangement, complete with tempo changes and a false ending. And it's one of Elvis's best vocal performance of the era. And if you really want to get a great idea of just how much Elvis's vocals make this song, then, boy, you're in for a treat. Because there's actually an original recording of this by the song's writer, Mark James, recorded the previous year, recorded at American Sound Studios, produced by Chips Moman, featuring essentially the exact same arrangement, with the primary difference being Mark James is singing it instead of Elvis Presley, and the results are about what you'd expect. We can't go Mark James stinks up another one. And we can't feel our dreams. Suspicious Does this even have a lead vocal? Right, so it's basically the same in every way except for the uh let's say less good lead vocal. Like Elvis not only, you know, killed it with the vocals, I think, you know, the band stepped up their game too. And the Elvis version of Suspicious Minds just absolutely annihilates the original by the original artist here, even when they're using the same band, essentially. But yeah, just a great song. Like, one of the definitive Elvis songs. Yeah, Suspicious Minds, it's, it's great. It has an exciting arrangement, and I'll just point out the amazing drumming by Gene Chrisman. Um, and like everything else that Elvis ever did, good songs or not, I mean, it is wonderfully sung. The one thing that's always irked me, and this is not political, is that Suspicious Minds has what I call the wouldn't it be nice problem, where it's got this amazing, amazing, amazing chorus, and then it abandons the chorus halfway through and never comes back. Uh, the, the whole fade out with caught in a trap, I can't walk out, it's fun, but it's not, we can't go on together with Suspicious Minds, which is just one of the great choruses of, of any song. I always wish it'll come back to that, and I think it's a mistake that it doesn't. But there's worse things, there's worse problems for a song to have than having something in common with "Wouldn't it be nice?" Right. It's one of those things where my take is, you know, if you if it's too short, play it again. Well, to demonstrate the extent of my Elvis ignorance, I actually didn't recognize this song when I put it on. I've apparently heard it though because, uh, as Amanda informed me, it was played during the opening credits of *Intolerable Cruelty* by the Coen Brothers, <laughs> a movie I saw on opening day, and it was also in the films *Blade Runner 2049* and *Frequency*, which I have also seen. So, for all of my movie watching, I can be pretty inattentive when it comes to soundtracks. Is what I'm also getting at here. I think to modern ears, um, the early Elvis stuff is the stuff that is more likely to be recognizable because that's the stuff that's more frequently held up as the really innovative stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And it also sounds a little bit more vital, I think, to modern ears. Yeah, that's the thing. Outside of a museum, it might not have occurred to me that it was Elvis. Like this era doesn't get nearly as much respect in modern times as the older stuff, which mm-hmm. is understandable. But uh, it's a complicated situation, as I am fond of saying. I still like the early stuff better, but dismissing this later era Elvis stuff is a mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a good song. Like, what? It's suspicious, it's suspicious Minds. Haven't you heard it? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have another single to go through. This is Kentucky Rain. So I'm walking in the rain Thumbing for a ride On this lonely Kentucky back road I've loved you much too long My love's too strong Let you go Never knowing What went So this wasn't as big a hit as Suspicious Minds, but I absolutely love this song, so I had to include it in the discussion. It's just got a huge arrangement with a soaring vocal from Elvis in the chorus. Just a spectacularly good song. It basically sounds like, if this makes sense, it's good MacArthur Park. (laughs) It's similarly like big and melodramatic and over the top, but the topic is less silly. The arrangement is less silly. The vocal is much better. It's basically what that would be if it was a better song. Because it's so easy when you're doing something this big to go over the top and just sound ridiculous. You have to have an enormous amount of talent to pull something like this off and have it not come across as ludicrous. But again, Elvis and the American Sound Studios band had that kind of talent. And as a result, this song just absolutely soars. It's great. One of my Probably one of my three or four favorite Elvis songs of all time. They had talent and they had restraint. I mean, now that you now that you say that, it's like this. They could have glopped up a lot of these songs, especially this one, and they hold back from doing it and they, they keep things crisp and simple. Right. I mean, it's big and over the top and as I keep on saying, but it never feels oppressive. Yeah, they, they strike just the right balance. Yeah, this isn't a profound song, and I don't have a ton to say about it, but I love it probably as much as Phil does. I mean, it's an excellent country song, excellently sung, and I really love the string arrangement, too. And by the time it reaches that final refrain, which is with Elvis just uh, fading out in the cold Kentucky rain, in the cold Kentucky rain, it's just magical. Yeah, so this was another one where this was where Elvis's version was the first version. So it was written by one Eddie Rabbit, along with Dick Hurd. Yeah, an Eddie Rabbit song. So Eddie Rabbit became a pretty sizable country music star by the 80s in his own right. But he started out as a pretty successful country music songwriter. And he didn't actually start his own recording career until 1975, which is a year after he wrote the song Pure Love, which was a huge hit for Ronnie Millsap, 
who is actually playing on Kentucky Rain. Oh. So it goes round and round. Many years later, Eddie Rabbit recorded this himself, basically using the same kind of arrangement. And it's fine. Good enough, but... I mean, you got to have an Elvis level voice to really make this work. And Eddie Rabbit does not have an Elvis level voice. I only know Eddie Rabbit because my dad had the Every Which Way But Loose soundtrack, which was the, the Clint Eastwood movie where he I think he hangs out with a, a chimp. Yes. Yes, that is the one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we know. <laughs> OK, Phil, what are your general thoughts on Elvis Presley and from Elvis in Memphis? Huh, Elvis Presley. <sighs> Yeah. It's so hard to come up with 50 words or less with like, yeah, a short description <laughs> of the career of Elvis, because it's so hard to separate Elvis, the man from Elvis, the myth. Yeah. And I really think that Elvis, the myth keeps people from engaging with his music because you just hear about, you know, Graceland and all the crazy stuff going on there and the Memphis Mafia and, you know, all the movies and, you know, him dying young and tourist attractions what? and Elvis sightings and all this stuff. And it's just so much baggage. Like, I talked about this a little bit in the Grateful Dead episode, but as much as they've been overwhelmed by cultural baggage, there's still nothing on Elvis. But I really do think Elvis is worth engaging with. Try as hard as you can to forget everything you know about Elvis and just try to get this album, like listen to it as just some guy with a really good voice and a really good band and see if it can connect with you. Yeah, I'm going to jump off your point about Elvis, the myth, because, uh, well, so so everybody with middle age on the horizon has acquired at least one word that like, you know, the new generation say that disproportionately bothers them. For me, in the last few years, culture critics have really gone hard on the word iconic. And, and I think it's a useful word in regards to capturing certain moments in fame. Uh, but I feel like it's getting increasingly used as a synonym for good. And to me, Elvis is an artist who is so iconic that it's not only overshadowed his music, it's actually actively worked against it. Like, there is just so much kitschy bullshit iconography so much baggage associated with elvis that it's just it was it's hard to dig through it and find a great album like from elvis in memphis which i honestly did not even know existed so uh, it's been really nice to get the opportunity to re to reassess a very important and yes iconic musician that i completely written off uh ben what about you i could write a book on elvis and the more i'm saying it the more i, I really want to eventually um and I'll also say Phil did a great job on this episode, and I've loved being on it. Yeah, you uh, did, Phil. Ah, oh, thank you. Yeah. What I'll say here is that Elvis has been dead for longer than I've been alive. So to me, he's always been this this dead legend, someone kind of not entirely real. You know, everything that Phil and Rich said about just the all the iconography built up around him, even his name, Elvis Presley, can make you think can't have been a real guy. He was made up by a screenwriter. He's a creation of the Elvis impersonator industry uh, to spur employment in the field. So it fascinates me that for a few magical decades, he was a real guy. He, he may have been a far off celebrity, but he was a guy with family and friends. And you could see him in concert, watch him at the movies. He made great music and crappy music, and crappy movies and 
slightly less crappy movies and he was in the news and in the tabloids and I'm jealous that my parents' generation got to experience Elvis, the person who didn't yet completely belong to the ages. Okay, I hear that Elvis has some other work out there. If somebody wanted to get into Elvis Beyond from Elvis in Memphis, where should they start? Oh, that is a good question. As I talked about a little bit at the top of the episode, Elvis, when he started in the mid-50s, it was really not the age of LPs. So... Albums were assembled haphazardly, and they continued to be assembled haphazardly throughout his career. And then compilations were also just slapped together from random collections of tracks. It's so hard to get a handle on where to start, because there's 800,000 compilations, and blah blah blah, just utterly impossible. I would say, if you have the money for it, and you can find it pretty cheap actually used... I would recommend just picking up a box set that is, it's a five-disc box set called Elvis Presley, The Complete 1950s Masters. And what this box set is, is it's just everything Elvis recorded in the 50s, which is, you know, most of his super iconic, famous stuff. And the other day I looked on Amazon and there were used copies of it for like 10 bucks. So you can probably find that for cheap and it'll give you a better picture of what Elvis was doing than listening to his very haphazardly assembled albums would be. That said, if you like from Elvis in Memphis specifically, there's a bunch more stuff from these sessions that got used later. In particular, I would recommend the follow-up album, which is a double album titled From Memphis to Vegas slash From Vegas to Memphis which the first disc of it is a live album from Las Vegas, starting that trend for Elvis. And then the second disc is just 10 more songs from the From Elvis in Memphis sessions. And while they're not as good as the stuff that's on From Elvis in Memphis, they're comparable. So if you liked this, then you would probably also like that. I'm like a stranger. Like a stranger in my own. Like a stranger, like a stranger in my own home. My so called friends don't be friendly. Oh, but you can't keep a good man down. Ben, you got any recommendations for us, Moody Blue? <laughs> As Phil has made clear, Elvis was not an albums guy for the most part, but he did make a few great ones. And my favorite is his 1967 gospel album. How Great Thou Art. Coming after uh, his movie soundtracks, it's his first collection of really good music in several years at that point. Um, it's half slow, searching, sort of ballad-like songs and half up-tempo barn burners, all of them about how great he, with a capital H, is. You saw me crying in the chapel The tears I shed were I know the meaning of content. Now I'm happy with Lord. It's also cool to me because uh, the cover has him standing in front of a church in Sandwich, Massachusetts, which is just like an hour south of me on Cape Cod. And I've been there and taken the same picture in front of it. Although I'm pretty sure that Elvis was never actually there and they just 
photoshopped him in front of the church. I still think <laughs> it's cool. Elvis always shined when he made gospel music because it was something he really cared about. He also made a great gospel record in the early 60s called His Hand in Mine, and a slightly lesser but still enjoyable one in the early 70s called He Touched Me, which sounds like it should be in a police evidence locker. Uh, my second pick would be everything else he ever did because it's Elvis. Uh, you heard it here first. Ben is recommending the Harem Scarum soundtrack. It's <laughs> exactly what I said. Well, that's an upcoming episode. We've teased it before. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I don't know Elvis well enough to recommend anything, but I do have an album in the genre, Country Soul Albums by White Artists with the title Blank in Memphis, released in 1969 and recorded at American Sound Studios. Uh, <laughs> and that's Dusty in Memphis by Dusty Springfield, which I actually prefer a little bit and i've got a clip of a really great song called don't forget about me don't 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 <laughs> that is a dang good record Okay, next album. So it's October, so it's time for some scary and evil albums. So first we're doing the scary. Dan is going to give us the many faces of fear, including Air, Paper, Electric Guitar, and Ezimbra with Talking Heads' 1979 album Fear of Music. So that's going to be a fun one. Roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy From Elvis and Memphis and other albums by The King everywhere ever. <laughs> I recommend your local record store or the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. We've also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com, featuring the album and every song we clipped. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at Discord Pod on Twitter for news and updates and on Instagram for pictures of our pets, including my cute doggy. Check out Ben's book, All the Days of His Life, listening to David Bowie song by song on Amazon. Editing is by me, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for his production and editing skills, and original music. See you next album, and be ever wonderful. Showing no good. Yeah!